Hi, this is Ron Mars, writer of Green Lantern, Silver Surfer, Witchblade, Star Wars, and a bunch of other comics. And you are listening to Spoiler Country. It's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Welcome back to Spoiler Country, everybody. I am Johnny Horsley, and today we've got a repeat guest, Mr. Ron Mars, came on. He came on and talked to us about his Dead God Kickstarter back in July of 2019, and now he's coming on to talk with Jeff about Green Lantern, CrossGen, and a whole lot more of his career. And this is pretty special because Jeff's a pretty big fan of Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern, and you know Ron Mars was the co-creator of that character. So, without further ado, let's listen to Mr. Ron Mars in his own Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, favorite writers of all time, Mr. Ron Mars. How are we doing, Mr. Mars? I'm good, Jeff. Please, just Ron. Ron? Okay, will do. It, I'm definitely at least a huge fan, so if I geek out a little bit, you do. I do apologize ahead of time. It's <laughs> uh, very kind of you to say. Thanks. I've been, I've been reading your work all the way back since the days of Green Lantern when you started Emerald Twilight. We'll get to that in a little while, but like I said, you've done so many great works that uh, you worked on CrossGen, Witchblade, so much great work. Thanks. Well, I've been doing it, you know, I've been doing it for a while. I haven't had to have a real job in a long time. <laughs> that must have a, be a great feeling. Well, if you can, uh, you know, if you can do your hobby as your job, uh, you never work a day in your life. That, that is extremely true. Did When did you know you wanted to do this for your, for your life? Like, do you, did you, were you buying comic books as a kid growing up? Yeah, I mean, I was always kind of a, I was a comic reader as a kid and then fell out of the habit as a teenager, I think like like a lot of us do. But I always, I always thought I was going to be a writer. It was always the direction that I was pointed in, and it never really occurred to me to be anything else. You know, I thought I would maybe write novels or screenplays or something like that. I didn't know that comics would be the way would be the way I would make my living. But when the opportunity presented itself, I was fortunate enough to be able to do it and stick with it. And you know, thirty years later, I'm still here. So, which ca- which characters did you comic com- books were you reading growing up? As a kid, I was, you know, in terms of regular comics, I was like, I always liked the team books. So I was like an X-Men and Avengers guy. And then I read a lot of the, the, the magazines, you know, Marvel Black and White magazines, Savage Sword of Conan and Epic Illustrated when Marvel kind of did their sort of heavy metal type type magazine. 
And then I kind of fell back into comics in the mid 80s when Watchmen and Dark Knight came out and those sort of lured me back in. Is it, is it because how rich they were with their characterizations? Did they just feel like the one thing after comics early on with the 60s and 70s, a lot of that had to do with the comic books not feeling mature or maybe maybe some level of embarrassment reading them as if you were an adult. Did you feel did they make them did Watchmen and the Dark Knight make it feel like it was OK to buy comic books again? Yeah, I mean, I, I was never really, you know, embarrassed to buy comics. But when I came back to them and Watchmen and Dark Knight were were, you know, the big deals of the time, along with I, I think probably I, I started reading regularly just before both of those came out. So I, you know, I read Frank Miller's Ronin and kind of got lured in by Miller's Daredevil and Simonson's Thor, which paved the way for, for the other stuff. So there was definitely a sense of comics having grown up, of comics telling different kinds of stories and telling, you know, I always, I always hate to say, oh, well, well, comics were telling more mature stories. Well, it's, you know, it's still dudes running around in costumes beating each other up. <laughs> but the, there was a different, you know, th- there was a different sensibility to a, a lot of the comics. They were they were more sophisticated, I guess, maybe is a better better word than mature. So the sophistication and the kinds of stories being told was a real attraction to me. So you said growing up, you were more interested in the team books. I, looking back at a lot of your career, you didn't. You've written. You're more seems to be well known for the solo books. Did you? Is there a team book that you're that you had wished you had a chance to write on? Yeah, you know, I was I was actually a big Teen Titans fan too. Like New Teen Titans with with Marv Wolfman writing and George Perez drawing. That was a book that was that was a big deal when I kind of rediscovered comics. The one of the first comics in that in that period that I saw was the new Teen Titans X-Men crossover. And I, you know, even though I had was not reading comics at that point, I knew enough like I noticed that on a on a rack or something maybe in the in the mall or at a Walden Books and I knew that that was oh those are two teams that shouldn't be meeting. How is this actual actually possible? This is a Marvel Marvel DC thing. So I picked up that book and was really just entranced by the whole thing. So I I always wanted to write uh teen titans uh, and got close a couple times i was the i was the bridesmaid in a couple of bake-off <laughs> for teen titans and never quite got never quite got the gig although as it you know as it turns out co-writing the endless winter crossover at dc with my buddy andy landing and one of the issues in that crossover is a teen titans issue so i finally got to scratch that itch well, was that a request upon getting the job i need to write a teen titans issue um, no, it was just, it was a, yeah, I wish it was a request. Um, it, it was, you know, that was, that book was grouped in with the titles that we were going to have to, to cover in the crossover. So it was, to me, it was a very cool, very cool happenstance that I was finally going to get my hand on, on that book. And as it turns out, Donna Troy and Beast Boy from, you know, the, that Wolfman Perez Teen Titans era are in the issue. So uh, and I really got to, you know, I really got to play with those characters. There's there's some scenes in Titans Tower, which was a big deal in the Wolfman Perez era. So I really got to lean into that stuff a little bit for this crossover. Yeah, it, it's kind of like looking at your career, it, it, it feels, and it, it might sound weird at the beginning, but it sounds, it feels a little bit like you're sort of like Dwayne The Rock Johnson of comic books. That you're always brought in to either save a franchise or launch something brand new, like Witchblade, Kyle Rayner, 
you have launched cross-gen. That seems to be like some your expertise is to fix what is broken and make it work again. Does does it ever feel that way with you? Yeah, I mean it's not like I it's not like I go into gigs looking for that, but that those are sometimes the ones that come my way. I had an editor tell me that, you know, oh, you're, you know, you're the guy that does world building. And, and, you know, like nobody had ever said that out loud to me before. And I went, oh, is, is that what I do? Is, is that <laughs> like, is that what's on my resume? And I guess to a certain extent, that's part of it. It's, you know, it's, it's flattering to be somebody that, you know, the publishers feel like, oh, let's, let's go get him and put it in his hands and he'll fix it. I mean, that's how, to a certain extent, Witchblade came around when I wrote that. It, Top Cow came to me and said, "Well, this this book needs to be fixed. What what would you do with it?" So I approach really any gig, any gig the same. Really, it's a question of figuring out what makes these characters work. I try to write everything you know from character first. You figure out what makes those characters work, what the what the core characteristics and and the basics of that character is, and then you build out from there. So really any gig that I approach, whether it's a you know company-owned thing like Witchblade or uh, Silver Surfer or Green Lantern as a concept, I try to figure out the stuff that, that makes it work. And even on, on creator-owned stuff, stuff that I've created from the ground floor up, you know, you figure out what are the what are the things that make this thing unique? What are the characteristics that this book or this character might have that you can't get somewhere else? And and you work you work on those. Is it basically faith in the character itself? Because it, it feels like a lot of times when a character does get lost somewhere, it feels like when it, that does happen, that it's the writer who lost faith in what made that character special. They tried to make it new, tried to update it in some way, tried to do something that kind of alters what was the essence of that character. Do you feel this, that that's usually when the character starts losing its way? Well, uh, you know, certainly the, you know, the guy who turned Hal Jordan into a villain is probably not the one that, that <laughs> is, is going to answer that question. You know, I think you, you try to stay true to what, what the original intentions of the character are in terms of how that character works. Now, certainly we, we went, we went against type when we did Emerald Twilight and, and turned Hal into a, into a villain. But I, I think hopefully we, we stuck to some of the psychology for Hal Jordan that might make that a possibility. I mean, for me, it's always, it's always a question of, you know, what story do I want to read? That's always been how I approach this job is I try to, I try to tell a story that I would want to read and then you hope that the that the rest of the audience comes along with you. Well, when you wrote Witchblade, I and I and I may be a little bit wrong about this, but I do feel that, that it was you who really focused on the idea of the Trinity: Witchblade, Darkness, and the Angel um, Angelus. Am I pronouncing that right? Angelus or yeah. Angelus, however and, it's pronounced. Yeah. That was really it was you who made that decision, and by doing that, you built up a mythology around the character that I don't think had been seen quite at that level before. And I really do feel that it's, it felt to me anyway, that was your intention to make it feel, give it a mythology and make it feel like there's this history behind it that gave the character extra weight. Well, in, in that case, the, all the pieces were kind of there, all the pieces for the Trinity and kind of what became the top cow cosmology were a lot of that stuff was already in place that it had just never been kind of stitched together in a framework. And, and that was, 
one of the things that I ended up doing when we did the artifacts crossover for Top Cow was that a lot of that stuff seemed to be related, but the but the connections had never been made explicit before. So so bringing Witchblade and the Angelus and the Darkness together in in the Trinity and making all of those concepts hopefully relate to one another and work with one another. You know, I guess I guess in, to some extent I was responsible for that, but I was really just putting the putting together the pieces that were already in place and figuring out how they fit best. When when you got the when you got the gig at uh, for Witchblade, was that part of it? Did someone say we want you to focus on the bigger story, or did you go to them and say this is my pitch? You know, with Witchblade, I just tried to make sure that on a monthly basis you cared about what happened to her as a character that you were engaged in her story as a person, not necessarily the Witchblade, the Witchblade legacy and all that stuff. I wanted you to care about Sarah Pizzini, both as, you know, as a, as a hero, but also as a New York city police detective. And, you know, later on in the series as a mother, I wanted, you know, I wanted her to, to be somebody you wanted to read about whether she had the Witchblade or not. I, I was the same thing I did with Green Lantern, which was, I wanted Kyle Rayner to be of of interest to you, whether he was sitting at his art table doing a doing a drawing, or you know fighting Darkseid out in the cosmos somewhere. I wanted the characters to be as real as possible and as interesting as possible, whether they were in costume or out of costume. So you also introduced a character called Danielle. Is it Baptiste? Baptiste, in, yes. In, into the comic book. What was the impetus of? of around creating her character and were there plans to make the the book solely hers at some point? I mean, ultimately the, the idea with, with Danielle was that she was going to be Witchblade for a while and then Sarah would get it back and Danny would move on to be the personification. That, that sort of tried and true comic making, which is you introduce a new character and, and put them in a, central role in this case you know she she was going to be the witchblade bearer for a while and then you you spin them off in a different direction once they've earned some audience loyalty and and the readership would be interested in what happened to them it's it's really you know like ultimately not all that different than what happened with with ironheart right you know she becomes iron man for a while and then gets spun out into her own title we've been doing that kind of stuff in comics for 50 years was there ever a concern that people would be unhappy that Sarah no longer had the was no longer the face of the book at that moment? Well, I think there was an ex- expectation that people would be unhappy. That's that's the nature of what we do. If if you don't change anything in the comic, the readers get annoyed because you're not changing anything. If you change something in a comic, the readers get pissed off because you changed something. Um, <laughs> so so you go into it knowing that it's a no win situation that that you're somebody's going to be upset no matter what you do. So that being the case, you don't, you don't worry about it too much. You just tell your story. Is, is she also important? Did you need a character to be the new character to be like the audience surrogate to experience the history and, and have to learn things the way the readers, new readers would have to learn things? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, absolutely. I mean, that's the, you know, that's another tried and true tool in the writer's toolbox is to, bring in a character who doesn't know anything and and you use that character as a proxy for the readership to learn what they need to learn. That's, you know, that's kind of a way that you, you layer information into a story 
and hopefully it feels natural because you're, you know, you're explaining stuff in story in the context of the story. So uh, hopefully the readers don't know that you're actually, you know, you're actually handing them an inf- information download of here's what you need to know. I will say it, it really was your run with Witchblade that got me reading Witchblade. For that, I had picked up a few issues here and there, you know, the occasional issue out of curiosity. But I think it was really what you were doing in that world building that world building that you were doing that really made the character truly work. And I think I was like a lot of readers saddened when the series came to an end. Well, thanks. I you know I had a ball doing it. I didn't really know that Witchblade was going to be such a great fit for me. I I was offered the book and really had never read many issues of the title in the first place. So when I was offered the book, I said, well, you know, please send me, please send me some issues. And they sent me an, an entire box of, of everything that had been published. So I could, I could sort of sort through it and see, see what I felt like worked, see what I felt like the, the core of the concept and the character was. So you know, I got into it not really knowing that it was going to be the fit that it was, and I ended up writing the book with a with a break in between, but for for a total of about ten years. It, I mean, it was a, a wonderful run. Is there? I mean, is there not really? I'm not gonna say a trick because that's not the right word. But it, how do you write a great female character? Because I must say, I, I as a writer, being a, a guy, I have I think more difficulties writing a female character than male characters. Is there a, a, a method of doing it well, or how to look into it? I, you know, honestly, I don't even really think about it. I just write characters, whether they're, they're male or female. To me, they're, they're all people and they're all different. I think in general, women tend to be smarter and more empathetic. So that tends to be what I bring to writing a female character. But I, to me, they're all walking, talking, breathing real people. So, so my method is to just try to create, you know, create as real a character as possible and that means, you know, that means shades of gray. That doesn't mean everybody's, you know, I don't think anybody's all good or all evil to to great extent. So you try to have those shades of gray in there and and you try to have the character, the character is delineated by the choices they make. So, yeah, like, like I said, which was fantastic. Another character you actually created my favorite character of all time in comic books, Kyle Rayner. He's by far um, my favorite. I even have on uh, Facebook the... Kyle Rayner appreciation uh, page to uh, to honor <laughs> your character. It's, it really is. is a, it's, it was a tremendous character. And I've been reading Green Lantern for maybe five years prior. I, I, I have since bought every single Green Lantern comic book um, that was ever been done since 1960. But buying it for a long time, and I, and I don't know what, how, how Jordan, but I really do feel like Kyle Rayner was such a breath of fresh air in, in the uh, series for the character. And I know you, uh, you made a comment about what they did with how, jo- what do you do with how Jordan, you know, that, but I do feel like that was a necessary break in the series to give Kyle Rayner and the mythology of Green Lantern another life. And I think that was fantastic that you did that. Oh, thanks Jeff. I appreciate it. It, it, you know, the opportunity was offered to me to take over the book and to tell the story of how Jordan falling from grace and, and not being Green Lantern anymore. So that, those parameters were in place and then the creation of Kyle was was to large extent left up to me and to Daryl Banks the artist on the series and and to our editor Kevin Dooley so we were kind of left alone to make up to make up whatever kind of character we wanted and you know I grew up reading Marvel books I grew up as a Marvel kid much more so than than a DC kid so I kind of set out to make 
Kyle more of a Marvel style character, more of a Peter Parker, feet of clay kind of uh, relatable to the reader kind of character. Because I felt like Hal Jordan was very much a Silver Age, iconic, heroic type of character. So it didn't make any sense to me to just repeat that that archetype with a new Green Lantern. It, it, to me, it was, if we're going to do something different with the book, let's let's absolutely do something different with the book. I think what you did, one of the things you did that was absolutely genius, that you created a definite sense of dramatic irony that you actually had the readers understand the mythology better than the character who was in the costume. And I don't think I've ever seen that really done before. Well, I always feel like the, the, the hero's journey of becoming the hero is generally more interesting than the hero who is already the hero. So we spend a lot of time with Kyle kind of growing into the role and learning how to do the job, learning to learning the backstory of, of what being a Green Lantern was, learning how to do the job with nobody to teach him, really. There was, you know, it was a lot of trial and error on, on his part because he was, for a long time, the last Green Lantern. Now, early in, in the series, I think it was within the first maybe year and a half, Rainer faced Hal Jordan twice in, in, in battle, once in Zero Issue and once in the series Parallax View. Do you think, was it important to have Rainer best Jordan? And was there ever a feeling in writing Rainer that the legacy of Jordan kind of hung over him at all, like a shadow? Oh, sure. I mean, you absolutely had to have Hal's legacy hanging over Kyle and hanging over the, the, the book as a whole. And, you know, certainly there was a, there was a sales aspect to it as well, because you know, people were excited when Hal was in the book as as an antagonist. We didn't want to go to that well, you know, all that often. But we, you know, we could bring Hal in once in a while. And and I always felt like he was, you know, he was an antagonist, but he wasn't really a villain. He was he was doing the wrong thing and making the wrong decisions. But in his mind, he was doing it for the right reasons. When, when you were creating those situations with Rainer and how Jordan, I mean, did you feel once again that you did have to show that Rainer was the better Green Lantern? Like, you know, Cause I know there's some, obviously with a little bit old Green Lantern fans who still may have had some of their heart with how Jordan to show that, you know, Rainer really is the better character here. Well, to me, it was never a question of the better character. It was just this, you know, okay, it's, it's Kyle's book now. And he was, he was the hero and how was, you know, if not a villain and antagonist, and the hero generally needs to win in comics. That's in superhero comics, at least. So, you know, it wasn't ever a question of showing who was better. It was a question of of contrasting the characters, both in terms of how they approach the job and in terms of who was the hero and who was, you know, who, who was doing the, the job for the right reason and who was pursuing his own goals for maybe the wrong reasons. Whose idea was it to make Kyle Rayner an artist? Was it yours or Daryl's? That was mine because I just felt like, to great extent, Green Lantern is a special effects book, and the the stuff you can show with the lantern, with the ring, the the ring creations needed to be a lot cooler than you know giant arrows and boxing gloves. <laughs> so, so it just made sense to me to have somebody with a real visual imagination in that role and to make as, you know, to make the coolest stuff we possibly could with the ring. The, the question I always had about the constructs is that are the constructs 
one way or another better than another version of a construct? In other words, does a bigger or stronger construct, like does an airplane construct that stronger than a boxing glove construct? Did you ever think about how that actually functions or is it just the willpower alone and they're both equally powerful depending on how much will is inserted into them? Yeah, I think it was just, you know, that's all that stuff is just open to, to interpretation. We didn't really have a, we didn't really have a set of rules of, of what was more powerful and whose constructs were more powerful. The only rule we had in place was that, that Kyle should never make the same thing twice with his ring. We wanted to make sure that if he created a robot, it was a different looking robot every time. You know, as, as much as possible, we tried to make, we tried to make every ring creation unique. Well, like I said, and, and Dara Banks, who we did, we did interview on the show some months back, is, was a phenomenal artist, or is a phenomenal artist as well. What 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 made your team uh, team up work so well between the two of you? I just think we had a lot of the same, and and still do, had a lot of the same storytelling sensibilities. I try to be as visual as possible when I write, and part of my job as the as the writer is to give the artist something cool to draw as often as possible. Don't write a bunch of pages of people standing around talking. (laughs) That's kind of a waste of the artist's abilities and time. So my, my goal is to make sure that the artist is excited every morning when he or she gets out of bed and goes to the drawing board. There should be something cool on every page. So Daryl and I just got along great. And, you know, I, I loved what he was doing. He seemed to really enjoy the scripts he was getting. I try to make life as interesting and as easy as possible for the artists I work with, because ultimately that makes for a better book. The, the artist being excited, having room to, you know, stretch artistic muscles and show off ends up for, with a better book. So it's, it's better for the readers. You know, I, I frankly get the credit for all the genius stuff that the artist (laughs) does. Anyway. So, so it's a question of, of, you know, how do we, how do we make the best book? And a lot of times I think the best, how do we make the best book? The answer is, well, give the artist something cool to draw on every page. Yeah. And at the same time you were doing with Kyle Rayner in, in your series, Kyle Rayner was also in JLA written by Grant Morrison. Was there communication between the two of you on, on how you're going to show Kyle Rayner in the justice league? And not only that, but show maybe growth in Kyle from the, that book, or was that basically like two separate entities? Yeah, I mean, Grant and I talked a few times, went out to lunch a couple of times in San Diego. And, you know, Grant had a wonderful handle on on Kyle and used him just terrifically well in Justice League as sort of the human the human POV of of, you know, the rookie being in with all of these these gods, basically Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, even Martian Manhunter. These were, you know hugely powerful characters. So being able to have Kyle amongst them allowed the readership to, to get a human point of view. What, you know, what is it like for just a regular person to be around Batman or Superman or Wonder Woman? So it was, you know, was a, it was just really gratifying for me every month to see the see Kyle as part of the justice league. It was, it was really thoroughly satisfying. And, you know, that was just a great book. Grant and Howard Porter together were just uh, a terrific combination. That's really cool that you got to read the JLA as a fan. And, you know, uh, you're able to just enjoy it in that way. We, we, I would always think that there's there's almost a, not competition, but a little sense of, you know, that's my character you're using kind of, you know. 
Oh yeah, definitely so. I mean, it was it's it, it was and still is just very cool whenever Kyle shows up somewhere that oh that you know that's that's kind of my guy. <laughs> well, well, I mean, the other thing because a lot of what seems like is an issue in comic books sometimes is that the characters are allowed or desire to be static and not grow. But with Kyle Rayner, you definitely show growth over the course of. I think you wrote it for 70 issues, maybe, maybe 80 issues. I can't quite recall the, the exact number. Yeah, I think it was probably, you know, 75 or 80 issues of the regular book and then, you know, annuals and specials and miniseries and stuff like that. So, I mean, ultimately, probably over 100 issues total. But, yeah, I, it, the the whole purpose of bringing a new character in to learn the job was to to take the readers on that journey, to take the readers on that hero's journey. And, you know, I, to, in some respects, I, I think about it and maybe we move that, that journey along a little too slow because, you know, when you're working on the book, you're working on it virtually every day. But for readers, you just, you know, you get it once a month and you forget about it for 30 days. So I, I sometimes wonder if we moved the process along too slowly. But, but ultimately, the, the vast majority of superhero comics are about heroes as they are. Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman and the Justice League. And, you know, they're they're all very much kind of how they have been for, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 years. The, you know, the old, the old adage is that that superhero comics are basically all middle because none of the stories end. Yeah. Um, you have an origin and then the rest is all middle. So to be able to really tell the story of someone growing into the role of a hero was was not the kind of opportunity you get very often with a large legacy franchise like Green Lantern. And and I think I really appreciate the risk that it takes to do that because on, on the one hand, you honestly can't just allow a character to not grow. I mean, at some point, like, I mean, Spider-Man, who is a good character um, as well, as a nerdy kid, it's like, well, at some point you're Spider-Man, you've been fighting the villains, you've been doing all these other things, you've been dating supermodels. At some point, you're not going to be that shy and nervous anymore. You've, you've grown out of that, I would imagine, with, you know, with all that experience. And you would think the same thing with any character that you should grow and develop and stuff like that. And I think that's fantastic. I think you did with Kyle Rayner. Of course, there's also, I assume there's also that risk that you're taking in taking away an aspect of the character that your fans started buying your character and enjoying that aspect of that character. So that must have been, you know, quite a bit of a risk taking calculation on your part. I, I suppose it was, but it's not the kind of thing you think about uh, what, when you're in the midst of it. Sometimes when you're, when you're doing the book, you don't really see the forest for the trees. You're just working on what's right in front of you. Well, I, and I, I will say, this is a comment about from my the Facebook group for Kyle Rayner. This is, I guess what you would call a hotly debated topic. Which character do you think was better for Rainer as a uh, Jade or Donna? Like, was there a sense that you needed one character fit better for you or over time you thought this character worked better? Boy, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I liked, I liked the Donna relationship because I was a Titans fan and it, it seemed like they were, they were well matched. We ended up losing Donna out of the book because John Byrne wanted to have her when he took over Wonder Woman and, you know, she's a Wonder Woman-based character, so they got first dibs. So we ended up having to write her out of the book fairly fairly abruptly, which I wasn't, you know, I wasn't fond of. It was a little too it was a little too uh, quick for my taste. I thought it it was it was it was so abrupt that the readers didn't get the closure they really deserved from the relationship. But then having having Jade in the in the book was was kind of cool because she was 
she was related to the Green Lantern legacy, but not specifically a part of the Green Lantern core legacy. So I, I don't know that I liked one better than the other, but I, I liked both characters a lot. I like I like both of them immensely. And I know Kyle has since moved on from both of them. But, you know, these things are are ultimately super, you know, they're they're superheroics with soap operas mixed in. So the the soap opera angle there is always pretty evergreen. Well, no pun intended. <laughs> well, I definitely appreciate you weighing on that. That it, it actually created quite a firestorm when when that question was brought up. And uh, the mount, and it must be something, and it says something about I think what you did with these characters that people were that passionate and respectfully passionate about that debate on which character was better for him. And it must be amazing for you to hear people have a serious debate about fictional character that you created. Yeah, well, look, passion is great. It's a, it's certainly a blade that cuts both ways. But, you know, you, you like people to be involved and engaged and to actually care. These are ultimately made up characters. These are not real people. But you, when it means something to somebody, it's it, it's flattering. You feel like you've, you've, you've done a good enough job in creating the book and creating the characters that, that people are engaged. And, and like I said, and the book has so many good ones. I mean, for villains as well, you created um, Fatality, which I thought was a, a, a tremendous villain. I think Fatality, I think, was one of the best rogues gallery Green Lantern characters in a very long time. I think I mean, the last great ones that I could think of for Green Lantern came out, you know, probably had came out of the 60s. You know, Hector Hammond, Sinestro and all that. Fatality, I think, was one of the best ones to come in a long time to the character, as, as was Effigy. So what was your, how did the creation of Fatality come about? Well, well, we were always kind of aware that the Green Lantern Rogue Gallery past Sinestro was not, was not real great. It was, it was, you know, charitably, it was a bunch of B-listers. So, you know, certainly Green Lantern's Rogue Gallery doesn't hold the candle to Flash's Rogue's Gallery, for instance. So we were very aware that we needed to generate some more villains. We needed to have a better Rogue's Gallery. And... Fatality was obviously brought into the mix because of the Cosmic Odyssey storyline with with John Stewart, which is one of my favorite DC comics. So mm. being able to go back to that and use that as kind of a touchstone for creating her character was a lot of fun. Effigy to me was, you know, very much Kyle's opposite number. He was sort of, you know, evil, irresponsible Kyle in a lot of ways. And I and I really liked the, you know, the look and the costume and everything. <laughs> When Fatal was used later on and made into a Star Sapphire, did anyone run it by you and think that was that a good idea? And do you think that was something that fit the character? Yeah, I mean, nobody ran it by me because that's look, you know, DC owns all these characters. They don't have to ask me anything. So it was just I was just a reader at that point of, of you know, paying attention to to where the character was going to go. So anytime you anytime you work on corporate characters, and that's not you know that's not a term to to, de- to denigrate the characters. It just means you know, somebody else owns them. They're not, they're not yours to play with ad infinitum. So, you know, whenever you do work for work for hire for, you know, Marvel or DC or working on star Wars or something like that, you, you know, that ultimately these aren't your toys and that somebody else will make the ultimate decision of how these toys are played with. So there's, there's not a whole lot of sense in getting too riled up about anything that happens. I do think effigy, was underutilized after you left. And I do, I feel like the character deserved a lot more, many more appearances that he unfortunately never received. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, you know, he was a character that, that, that we created and, 
and kept around for a while, but that doesn't mean that somebody else is going to, you know, the next, the next creative team that comes along or any of the creative teams down the line are going to have the same affection for him. So we, we, we actually kind of kicked around the idea of, of him returning in some of the more recent DC, DC stuff I've done, but it, it ultimately didn't, didn't work out. So, you know, maybe someday. Well, I know recently you got to write the 80th anniversary Green Lantern issue, or at least a, part, a chapter of it with Kyle Rayner. Did you find it difficult to jump back into the character's head? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, it was just like, you know, putting on a, you know, comfortable, comfortable pair of uh, jeans or, or a hoodie that, that fits just right. It was, I, you know, I had too many ideas for a Kyle story. So we had to narrow it down to which one <laughs> we were going to do and try to, you know, try to do a story that, that honored the legacy, which is obviously what the 80th anniversary special was all about to a great extent, but didn't wallow too much in nostalgia. Well, I think what I loved a lot about what you did in the 80th anniversary was you did a great job of expressing how important Rainer became to the mythos of Green Lantern. Um, and I really liked the line that you wrote for Mr. Barkley, which said, it could have ended with you, but it didn't. I think that's pretty important. Is that your commentary on the importance of your run? Yeah, I guess in a in a macro sense, that was, you know, that that's part of what our job was is to is to, you know, extend the franchise. And we, you know, we extended the franchise by pairing the franchise down to one character, which which I think shows the elasticity of the of the concept and and just Green Lantern is one of those franchises where it's got a lot of breadth and depth to it. You can do a lot of different kinds of stories. You know, Batman is generally always going to be Bruce Wayne. Superman is Clark Kent. And, you know, those things change and and have have different iterations at times, but it always comes back to square one. Green Lantern is one of the few franchises where you can kind of pick your favorite. And, you know, there's a there's a whole range of you know, what are essentially lead characters to choose from. And I also love about Green Lantern is the scope of the stories. I mean, you have anything from the street level, you know, standard bank robber villain to cosmic disaster villain. I think Green Lantern is one of the only characters that work equally well, regardless of which situation you put them in. Well, I think that was one of the cool things with Kyle. We could, we could do, you know, basically Spider-Man type stories in New York city, or we could do, you know, huge cosmic outer space stuff. It was, you know, again, it was because we had pared down to one character, we could really tell a whole range of stories. I mean, in, in that sense, it was, I kind of had the same experience in Witchblade where, you know, we could do police procedurals or quasi superhero stories or, or, you know, serial killer stories or, you know, cosmic horror or, you know, just, Anything was possible with with that that character and that concept because we could go in a lot of different directions. And it sounds like you still do follow the events of Kyle Rayner in the comic books. Is that true, or have, over time have you kind of lost touch with the character? Well, yeah, I mean, I I keep up with it, and you know, it's not like I go out and read every appearance, but when I get a chance, I'll read some Green Lantern stuff that's you know that's stacked up on the pile here. But you know, I obviously I have a. I have an affection for the character that I think Daryl and I both do. And I'm very proud of what we created, but it's, but you know, I know, I know it's not mine. I, you know, it, we, we created him, but DC owns them and they can do what they want. with it. That being said, do you like the direction the character had taken going from a blue lantern, a white lantern and everything else? Or do you, or do you feel the character has gotten lost over the, over the last few years? 
Well, I, you know, I never look at it like being lost. It's just, you know, somebody comes in and picks up the toys after you and tells the kind of stories they want to tell. And, and I think often I, you know, I see those stories and I think to myself, well, that's not what I would have done. But I think that's actually a positive. You want different people to come in and tell different kinds of stories. You want them to come in and put their own spin on the characters because that's, you know, that's the beauty of a shared universe. It's it's not all the same vision. It's not all the same types of stories being told. So the fact that somebody comes in and tells a wildly different Kyle story than I ever would have thought of, I think, is a, is a real positive for the character. Was there always a sense that how Jordan was going to come back because of, I mean, obviously, if you ever launch other media beyond comic books with Green Lantern, it's going to be Jordan who has to start that media, that franchise. Was there always a sense that he was going to come back and you couldn't have Kyle as your star if Jordan was eventually going to be the star of other media? No, I mean, when, when I was working on the book, there was no, you know, we never even discussed how coming back. As far as we were concerned, as far as we knew, it, you know, it was a one-way ticket. We, Kyle was Green Lantern, and that's and that's how it was going to be, you know. But you also know that there's no there's nothing that's permanent in comics, right? Jean Jean Grey's died 15 times, uh, <laughs> so you know you know that nothing is permanent, and all of these toys are in the toy box for somebody to play with. So in a you know, on the one hand, we never you know had a plan for how to come back or or be be the lead in the book. Because we were we were doing something different, but you always know that you know in the back of your mind that well somebody else could come in and do something different after we were done, which is which is what happened, and I think that's fine. Sometimes sometimes all a character needs is a break, is you know is to be taken out of the spotlight for a while to make the audience miss that character. Yeah, and 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 another character uh, book that you did that I think was absolutely fantastic. Or actually, I mean, it was your work on Crossgen comic books, which at the time when Crossgen came out, I pretty much quit everything outside Green Lantern and bought Crossgen. <laughs> I thought it was that wonderful <laughs> of a publisher. And, and you know, I mean, and, and I really did go out and I bought all of them. There was, and I think, I don't know how you feel about it, but I feel like if it was handled, the publisher handled it correctly, we could have still had Crossgen now. Do you think, it, do you think it, it was that was possible or do you think it was destined to eventually fold well it's it's a very expensive way to make comics having everybody on staff and you know they paid us you know they paid us very good salaries and we had benefits you know it was a real job so that's an expensive way to do comics uh, it's it's an expensive way to create a product that sells for three or four dollars a piece so i i look at i look back on the experience as a positive but i also realized that you know from a from a business standpoint it's it's a tough way to it's a tough way to to make comics unless you know that you're able to to move these properties into other media where you can generate more revenue. Do you think it would have been a preferred method of if Crossing had been proven truly successful and long lasting? Do you think that would have been a benefit to the industry for the writers and artists to be in that method of creation, or do you think it's better with more of the freelancers type of way that we have now? Well, certainly, you know, I think certainly most creators would rather be in the in the position where they have a steady job and they know the paycheck is going to come every two weeks. And and, you know, you have access to things like, you know, like a like a health care plan and a, and a 401k and vacation days and all that. Now, we're, uh, being a freelance, being a freelancer is, you know, it, you're always, you know, you're always lining up the next job while you're doing this job. 
that's not necessarily a complaint. It's just an observation of, of how this works. So that was one of the attractions of CrossGen is that everybody got treated, everybody got treated like a permanent employee. Everybody got treated like they were valued rather than uh, a replaceable cog. Was it by book or was it sort of like a salary job? I'm a, I'm a teacher, so no matter how many hours I work, I still get the same pay. It, 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 was it like the more, the more books you had, it was different? Or was it this is what you get, so you can, you know, so you have to do these many books or can do these many books? So, I mean, was there a more controlling aspect to being on a salary like that? You know, you, you, you got, yeah, you were on a salary. So, you know, if you, if you worked 40 hours one week and 60 hours the next week, you got paid the same no matter what. You know, your responsibilities were the the books the books that were assigned to you. And every once in a while, something extra would come up. Like, you know, for the artists, there would be, you know, pitch illustrations or something like that or an extra cover here and there. So extras came up, but everybody, you know, everybody kind of pitched in and pulled in the same direction. It was, you know, for a few years, it was... It was it was a pretty good situation. Well, the, the the books were wonderful. I mean, they felt unique. They were beautiful to look at. The art was tremendous. And I also loved what you did with the characters. And I found that there's like a seems to be there's definitely a theme that goes across a lot of your characters. Ethan from Scion, Daniel Baptiste, and Kyle Rayner, which are all characters that you said that are growing into being a hero. And was that another? Is that really something that you're particularly interested in? And you wanted to focus on a character with Ethan that was in a similar um, situation, looking trying to become a hero. Well, that's you know that's really the 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 usual hero's journey kind of stuff is is you know characters that are suddenly thrust into uh, a world that's much bigger than their own, much bigger than what they're used to. And they have to figure out how to, how to navigate it, how to, how to grow into the role and be, be responsible. I, the, the example that I always use is Cary Grant North by Northwest. You know, he's not a secret agent. He's just a guy. And the fact that he's just a guy makes him much more interesting. If he, if he's, if he's a secret agent, and knows how to do all this stuff. It's still an interesting story, but it's not half as interesting as just a regular person trying to navigate that world. When, when, when running a story like Scion, do you think to yourself, because obviously Scion was part of a larger universe, but in many ways is also very insular, its own its own little universe. Do you think, were you running it at, in your mind first as if the Scion universe was the only universe within the cross-gen universe, or did you always have to keep in mind that larger picture that they kept building towards? Well, there was, you know, we knew that there was that larger picture out there. In my books in particular, I tried to I tried to concentrate on the individual titles and not the overall universe stuff. I always felt like the individual titles needed to be completely 100% satisfying in and of themselves, and then the cross-gen universe stuff was kind of an extra layer for those for those readers that wanted it. But, you know, if if somebody came in and just wanted to read Cyan, they should get they should get the full story that that you would expect in any book rather than just just piecemeal. So eventually what what, what would have been your long-term goal for Scion if the issue if the company had it folded? What was did you have some what was your longer plan for the character? I think for Scion we had never really we had never really decided what the ultimate end of it was other than Ethan and Ashley would eventually marry and turn their both turn their backs on either of their kingdoms and go establish a new kingdom somewhere else with you know sort of equality for all as the as the concept behind it so what do you so he would have survived the, the negation war miniseries you're definitely yeah definitely 
Well, that was good. Like, like I said, I mean, I, I was able to talk to Tony Bedard of, of some years back and found out how how they ended, how his plan was to originally end that miniseries. I was really was hoping nothing would have happened to Scion because he really was my favorite character of that universe. Yeah, he was he was definitely, you know, we, most of the characters were slated to live through the war, although there were, you know, there would have been a number that that were that were casualties. But we wanted the the war to sort of bring together all of those overall sort of universe storylines and pay them all off. And then we could send the books off in, in their own directions. What would have been Ethan's role in that when they finally gathered? What, did he have a particular role he would have played in that series? That's probably a question better for Tony than me. But, I mean, he was in there and he was a character. But, you know, since Tony was the one writing it, the characters from Negation were really the ones that had a, had a central role. I wasn't sure if there was if you all gathered and to discuss that you know what I'm saying series because each had a part of that those characters. You know, it, part of the you know like part of the war was to pay off all of these threads that we had been running through a lot of the books, but a, but a bigger part of it really for for a lot of the writers was that we were we were tired of that overall storyline that we had to keep going back to. Yeah. So we wanted to we wanted to pay it off so that we could just just do our books as individual titles and not worry about the overall you know this huge cosmic arc to it. And if you know if we wanted to do that again in five years, you know, have another big crossover, great. But we wanted to just we wanted to pay off everything and sort of let the stories go where they wanted to go for a while. Oh wow! So the so the the series would have kept the the universe would have become less involved with each other been less tied together once the, the yeah it ended. Been, i mean it still would have been it still would have been a cohesive universe but we wouldn't have had so much interconnectivity between the titles we wanted to bring everything together and then let them go off and be separate for a while would the uh sigils still existed on the characters <laughs> yeah yeah the sigils would have still been a part of it but there wouldn't have been the overall you know the sigil bearers wouldn't have been in contact with each other we just would have told the stories that that the individual titles demanded. I, I must say, I'm definitely one of those people who are very disappointed when they were eventually purchased by Marvel and I guess now D- Disney, because I, I really do feel like there's they're, they've lost a lot or they're not properly using this property that they own that I think a lot of readers would have still enjoyed if they brought it back. I think there's an audience for cross-gen stuff. I mean, people ask me about it all the time. I just think it's, the, you know, the sale was, you know, Whoa, man, 16 years ago now, 15, yeah, 16, 17 years ago now. And I think Disney bought the stuff to get a hold of just a couple of properties and the rest sort of all came along with it. And those properties didn't really pan out the way Disney wanted them to. So I think to a large extent, the stuff has just been forgotten. They they trotted out some of them via Marvel and there were plans for maybe bringing some of them back in a crossover type series that never came to fruition. So now I think they're just because there's, there's no champion for it. There's nobody agitating to, to do anything with it. The properties are just sort of sitting on a shelf until, until somebody wants to go to bat for them. Yeah. And I think that's amazing because like I said, the sales that Crossgen had at the time would have been considered quite successful for an independent comic book now. Oh yeah. Certainly the, you know, the, the market was, the market was different then than it is now. And in some ways, I think Crossgen was probably three, four, five years too soon because 
Hollywood hadn't really discovered comics yet when CrossGen was in was in full blossom. If we had been around three, four years later, when studios and streaming services and all that, you know, other media platforms started to gobble up comics, I think we probably really could have made a go of it, or at the very least had the you know had the studio and the properties bought out by by a Hollywood production studio or film studio or or you know something like Netflix or Amazon because there was I still feel like there was a lot of pretty good content generated by the company but we were just you know we were just too soon and the burn rate of the money because of the way we were doing the comics because of the the overhead we had with having everybody on staff was was just too much and and honestly when the when the tech bubble burst and all the stocks plummeted that's where a lot of the owner's money went up in smoke. Uh, a lot of his, yeah. a lot of his wealth was via tech stocks, and when the tech stocks crashed, his wealth evaporated. Not, not completely, but we we suddenly had a much smaller war chest than we thought. The the lessons from CrossGen is that something that you took to heart when you created Ominous Press? Not really. I mean, the, Ominous was was and is just a way for. Myself and Bart Sears and Andy Smith and Sean Husfar and other people that have done work for us to to tell the kind of stories we want. And certainly a lot of the lessons, you know, business-wise that we learned at CrossGen are kind of in the forefront of our minds when we do ominous projects. So just recently, you had a very successful Kickstarter for Beast of the Black Hand Volume 2. For our listeners, can you give us the pitch of for Beast of the Black Hand? Beast of the Black Hand is a concept that was created by my friend and sculptor and artist Paul Harding, who's done a lot of sculpts for Star Wars, Gentle Giant, DC DC Direct, DC Collectibles, Diamond Select, Sideshow, virtually everybody he sculpted statues and action figures for. And Paul had this sort of monster concept, which is what Beast of the Black Hand turned into and brought in myself to write it and our friend Matt, Matthew Dow Smith to draw it. And it's, it's kind of a horror espionage story set right after World War I. So it's a, it's a period piece, but it's got magic and monsters and Rasputin and monsters from Eastern European lore. So we're, we're currently working on the second hardcover of it. And it's, you know, it's really just kind of a, it's it's got a little bit of Hellboy to it. It's got a bit of uh, sort of World War One comics. It's got a bit of espionage to it. Some of the characters that are actually in the book are are based on real people. Oswald Rayner is one of the main characters, and he's he's a British agent who is uh, kind of thought to be the person that actually killed Rasputin. His his espionage partner in the book is. Biffy Dunderdale, who's also a real person, was one of the figures that Ian Fleming based James Bond on. Henry Johnson is a World War One actual Medal of Honor winner from you know from the Albany, New York area where I live. He's a character in the book, so it's there's there's real real world stuff meeting monsters and magic and mayhem head on. So am I correct that Oswald Rayner is a nod to Kyle Rayner or am I totally off on that? Uh, he is not a nod to Kyle Rayner. He's he's an, Oswald Rayner is an actual person. He's he was, you know, like I said he's a he's a British secret agent. And when Paul initially brought me the story and said, you know, the the main character is Oswald Rayner, 
I said, well, you know, we're going to have to change the name because I can't do it. <laughs> name Rainer. He's like, no, Oswald's, uh, Oswald Rainer is a real person. Like we can't change his name because that's his actual name. <laughs> that's a, that, that's a hell of a coincidence. I must like, when you heard that, you're like, damn, this is fated to happen. I must rate another Rainer. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an odd thing. But once, you know, once I learned the, the truth, of it, I was like, oh, well then we have the perfect excuse. We can, I, we can, we have to name him Rainer now. <laughs> that, that, that was because cause when I read that, I was like, okay, so he's, he's going to, he's basically bringing Kyle Rainer into Omnis Press, but no, that's, I didn't know he was a real person. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the characters in Beast of the Black Hand are real people, and obviously we've we're we're embroidering from there. But the the real life stories of these people are are actually worthy of their own comics anyway. Oswald Rayner, Biffy Dunderdale, Maria Rasputin, who was the the daughter of Rasputin, Henry Johnson. These are you know, frankly, I'm I'm honored that we're you know that we're able to use these these real people. And, and if somebody goes and learns their actual life stories after reading beast of the black hand, that's a bonus. Well, I think one of the things I found very cool about the entire series is that once again, it takes place during world war one, but kind of assumes what would happen if you added, I guess I, I what I read was the description is that it's diesel punk. Is, is that a, the, the correct um, description of it? Yeah. It's not quite, it's not quite steampunk, but it's sort of dirtier and grungier. So Diesel punk seems to be about the best description we can come up with. <laughs> but it sounds awesome. I mean, it does sound like a very impressive term. You know, if you if you had to give anything a description in two words, diesel punk is a pretty badass sound to it. It's it really is kind of cool. The only question we ever have is is that one word or two words? <laughs> See, how I was writing it was a diesel dash punk. I'll, I'll go with that. Fair enough. <laughs> so volume two takes place in the nineteen twenties. You have the Black Hand being led by Maria Frasputin, and you, there's mention of a character called the Balbus. What is a Balbus? The Balbus is is actually it's a monster that Paul Harding came up with based on some Eastern European folklore. Can you, so he will he will be seen in Beast of the Black Hand Volume Two, and he will be large. Can Can you give any other details about what inspired the character, the the monster? In you said German um, mythology. Yeah, it's like it's like Eastern Eastern European Slavic folklore, and you know Paul Paul is pretty famous for you know coming up with this stuff, and we think he's just making it up, but he's actually like pulling from from real sources and then just embroidering it. Well, I, I'm definitely curious, it's, and so th- this is like Godzilla big, like Keiju? Not quite Godzilla big, but bigger than bigger than the the monster in Beast of the Black Hand Volume One. So we gotta you know we gotta keep making stuff bigger. <laughs> so you, you always got to what up yourself uh, that must <laughs> every time yeah well bigger is better right definitely most 100 so volume two is also right now on indiegogo is that correct it's still going strong right um yeah the indiegogo is you know you can put stuff up on indiegogo and it just sort of acts like a like a pre-sale really like a pre-order uh site so we're working on the book now and you know trailing trailing a little bit behind the schedule that we wanted to thanks to pandemics and people people moving and you know the the general sense of ennui that 2020 has has brought but we'll we'll wrap it up and it'll be a you know very nice hardcover companion to to volume one and no, that that is true. The pandemic does seem to be getting in the way of just about everything. Though I will say, the last couple of d- the last day or two has kind of made up for it. For as politics has gone, I think everyone feels a little bit lighter, a little bit happier. 
yeah, it's 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 going to be nice to be able to you know get up in the morning and not think about what the president is doing. I I, I totally agree. I think that a lot of people are saying that it's nice not to have to think about it anymore. And I must say, for the last four years, it's been on my mind quite often to start my day. Because we start the day with before I go to before I go to work. Um, like I said, I'm a high school teacher. First thing I do, wake up, grab some cereal, turn on the news. Start my day. And that's such a shitty way to start your day <laughs> the last few years. Well, it's, you know, now that we, we have the phrase doom scrolling now, right? It's, you know, yeah. it's unfortunately what what we've come to. And, and hopefully in a couple months, it we don't we have a we have a better feeling about daily life. It's obviously going to take us a while to work our way out from under the pandemic. And hopefully that gets that gets addressed in a more serious and scientific way as well. So I, I think everybody feels, at least people that I know, people that I interact with, everybody feels a little lighter these days because we feel like there's some light at the end of the tunnel. There's still there's still plenty of work to get there, and there's plenty of work to fix a lot of the damage that's been inflicted upon our system. But at least now we have a sense that we can start we can start those repairs rather than rather than having it made worse. I, I part of me does wonder as as someone who writes on a in a very on a very small scale and you know not obviously at the level where you are, but from you know what you've read as well and the other people who you've talked to who are you know in the industry and writing in other fields as well, I do wonder if there's going to be a change in tone of writing as well that will feel also hopeful that that kind of springs from the feeling of you're out of like the dreariness of the previous administration. Um, I don't know. You know, obviously, uh, you know, art always reflects life. Art reflects what we've gone through. And I think it's it's going to take a while as creators, as writers and artists to kind of work through what we've, you know, what we've experienced and how that comes back out. And do you, you know, do you portray that that sense of hopelessness or do you portray the hope? You know, I think everybody's got a different answer for it. But I, I, I definitely think this is, has been such a such a trying time for everybody. And, you know, in particular, the, the pandemic on top of the political situation, it, it's really, you know, like I've never experienced a, a year like this in my life, anything even close to it. So it's I, I think this is going to leave a mark. This is going to leave a, a permanent scar on on the, the nation's collective psyche and on the psyche of, of most of us. And everybody's going to deal with that a little differently. I hope. I hope some amazing art comes out of it, musically, artistically, literary. You have to use all of this stuff for fuel, and you have to hope that you can create something out of it that that enriches not only your own life but everybody else's. You, you know, you hope we didn't suffer through all this for no good reason. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely feels that since almost March. That time has pretty much stood still. You know, it has that weird feeling with that. You like you see those movies or the cartoons where after the, the villains fought and everything's lifted, everyone like wakes up, rubs their eyes, leaves the build, you know, leaves their house, and everything's green and bright and shiny. But it kind of feels like you've been trapped in the house now for god damn, was it eight months now? Yeah. It you know, I'm I'm in New York State, so it's you know, we've been in we're in pretty good shape comparatively. I mean, nothing's great, but you know, we've we've had a few months of of well, not normalcy certainly, but because I'm in a state where people are taking mask wearing seriously, and there's a lot of testing, and and in some ways, what we're doing is kind of a model for what 
you know everybody else should be doing things are things are a little better here you can you know you can go to a restaurant and be socially distanced and and you know feel like you're in in a relatively safe space particularly if you're if you're eating outside so you know it's it feels like we we've, we've been through an ordeal but with winter coming i'm afraid we're going to go back into that ordeal because everybody's going to be in closed spaces again and we're we have to be on guard about how how we deal with it i i think you know we had we had terrific weather this weekend i think a lot of people were out and about trying to do things and looking at it as well maybe this is the last chance i actually get to go out and you know experience something until you know until the snow starts to fly and we're we're all kind of shut in for the winter yeah i will definitely say i being a te- I, I live in rhode island and once again, I work at a high school and I do feel that that's something that has been on my mind for many months, especially being back at school with masks and everything else. And it definitely does seem like the one problem I do see with people is that the moment our numbers dropped and started going down, the mask came off and everyone back, went back to normal. And I feel like people are so short-sighted that they will immediately react to any positive news in a way that's irresponsible. Well, you know, the, the, the positive news is because you, you, you know, the positive news is the fruit of what you did. So, again, I, th- I feel fortunate to be in New York State because, by and large, people are taking it seriously here. And it's just, you know, everybody wears a mask. Everybody does what they're, you know, what science recommends you do. So I don't think, I don't think you know, the onset of, of winter and everybody being inside is going to, is going to make it much worse here. I think what, you know, there's, it's starting to, the, the instance of cases is starting to go up again a little bit here. And I think that's mostly from people bringing it in from other states. But, you know, the, the state health, the health system is really trying to do, trying to do a bang up job of testing and tracking and, and squashing hot spots as they come up. Because obviously New York City in particular went through hell in March and April and May. They, you know, look, anybody who says this is not a real thing, they were, you know, they were filling refrigerator trucks with bodies in Brooklyn. Yeah. I mean, people in New, people in New York State <laughs> know this is the real deal. This is this is not the flu. This is this is something much, much worse and much more communicable. So I think because New York State went through that hell, people take it a lot more seriously here. Now, certainly, you you know, you run into pockets of of people who who either don't believe or you know just want to you know just want to go back to living their normal lives and don't really care if they impact your life. But in general, you know, things are things are pretty good here. I wish I wish things were were as as positive around the rest of the country as they are here. Has, has it impacted you as a writer? Because I think we learned a lot about people during the last eight months. And we, I think a lot of our pr- perspectives on people probably has shifted a little bit. As a writer, has it affected you as, in, in how you carried out your characters and your stories? Not really. I mean, I, I think, that, you know, there's the, you know, you're sort of confronted with the reality that, that you know, here we are in the 21st century and and people don't want to believe in science just because it's not convenient. I, that's, I think we always knew that that sort of sentiment was there, but it's more obvious now, but I don't, you know, it hasn't, you know, somewhat ashamedly, it, it hasn't really affected me personally to any great extent. I've apparently been quarantined for about 30 years when you get right down to it. <laughs> um, this is, you know, I know so many people have had 
have had their lives completely upended. And, and I really have it because this is, this is what daily life has been like for me anyway. The only, the only thing that's really different for me is, you know, there are, I don't go to conventions anymore because there are no conventions. I miss, I miss that aspect. But other than that, you know, my day is the same. I, I get up in the morning and I make a cup of coffee and, and I come in, come into my office and I make stuff up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I must say I, I, as a teacher, I noticed the difference a little bit more because you're not allowed to be like the way you help and interact with your students is quite different. Like before you would sit at their, you know, near their desk and help them, you know, with their writing or something along those lines, or you would give them hand out a handout, a hard copy of something. And now you can't give that out anymore really because, you know, contagious potentially, and you can't sit next to them to help them with their writing because once again, potential exposure. So you do have to do everything from like uh, literally your desk and everything on you know the computer, and it does make things a little. It, it reminds you every moment that there's a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, look, we just you know we we are being forced to live our lives differently, and you know you can piss and moan about it and and be upset about it, and the only thing that the only thing that you're gonna gonna gain by not pay, not paying attention and not taking it seriously and not wearing a mask is you're just going to make it longer. Yeah, um, no, I, I agree with the you. Th- the, thing that, the thing that sort of drives me crazy is that we in New York state really, you know, really locked down everything and have lost, you know, look, I haven't, I haven't been to the gym in like seven or eight months, however long it, it's been since it started because, because gyms weren't open and the, my gym still hasn't opened. I maybe never will again. So we have, we have suffered, you know, disruption in our lives and and you know economic loss and you know my my favorite restaurant is gone is never coming back we've suffered all this and like at, nationally we're not we're not any closer to being done with it it's like all of the work that was put in by people in New York state for the last 7 months is kind of for naught because nobody else paid attention to it nobody you know plenty of other places in the country are taking it seriously I agree with you 100. It it does feel like the lessons were not learned, and unfortunately, I feel like the wrong lessons were learned. People are saying the lockdown didn't work. It's like it did work for those who did the right thing during it, and now people look at it as like, well, now we still have it. They don't realize, yeah, but because you didn't listen when you had the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, to me, it's just it's mind boggling because the, it's obvious that the lockdown works, and it it doesn't take that long to get things trending in the right direction. It's, it's sort of, it should be short-term pain for long-term gain, but if everybody's not pulling in the same direction, it, it does not, you know, it doesn't do the, the overall good that it's intended to do. And it's, it really is amazing. People estimated that if everyone had did the right thing in lockdown for maybe three weeks, we could have been out of this by now. And the fact that, you know, it, it it doesn't take that long, and and frankly, look, it's you know, so you got to wear a mask when you you know you go into the grocery store for fifteen minutes. Yeah, you know, if that's the if that's the worst inconvenience you have to deal with, you're doing all right. And and it, again, it's I think the 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 depressing thing for me has been <clears throat> that the whole sort of adherence to mask wearing and all of that stuff is it's not about you. It's, it's something that you're, that you're doing to benefit other people in case you're, you know, in case you're a spreader, in case you're asymptomatic and spreading it, it's, it's so that you don't inflict any harm upon anybody else. 
And so many people are just unwilling to do that. The the selfishness of it and the self-centeredness of it is, I think, something that we're going to be struggling with as, as a society for a long time because it's it's not easy to come to grips with the fact that that your fellow citizens maybe don't give a give a shit about you. Like they're 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 not willing to be slightly inconvenienced to safeguard your health and the health of everybody else. It it, it does pretty well illustrate that. And I and I do find still the funniest thing is when people put on the mask like run underneath the nose and they do it on, and they're doing purposely not the ones that sometimes you know it slips from time to time. But when it goes underneath, you know, they're, they're walking around like that. And I've talked to a few people. They're like, I can't breathe with the mask up completely. I was like, yeah, but that's the point. You're brought, you know, and people don't seem to, to, to figure that out. Is I, I, find, it, I find it disturbing. <laughs> yeah, look, you know, look, it's it sucks. It's inconvenient. And, you know, you wear glasses like I do. Your glasses get fogged up. And, yep. you know, it's, it's pain in the ass. But that's, you know, this is the situation we find ourselves in. You know, you, you don't, you know, if if the boat you're on sinks, you don't go. I don't feel like I don't feel like swimming. It, it's tiring and it's inconvenient. You know, you, you do what you have to do. And and it's almost almost like someone to use that same analogy that someone you see someone swimming or drowning and you have a life preserver in your hand and it's not worth the effort to throw it. <laughs> it's like well, yeah. whatever. It, it's too much. It's too stressful. I'm not fucking doing it. <laughs> it's it's yeah. It's 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 too much of an imposition on me. Yeah. So hopefully you know hopefully you know new administration more of an adherence to actual science we you know we can we can uh, attack this and you know come out much better on the other side i agree 100 percent. also just to go back a little bit so beast of the black hand is there going to be a volume three well i would hope so we have more stories to tell but we want to get through volume two first before we make any decisions would it, it will follow the pattern of being uh, World War One, 1920s. Will this one be, I assume, 30s, 40s, World War Two? This volume two is uh, literally a few months after volume one, so it's still it's still post World War One in early in the early 20s. If if we have we have talked about future volumes being set, you know, close to World War Two. Well, it, it sounds very cool, and you said the Indiegogo is still going. The Kickstarter is complete. Am, am I remembering that that correct? Yeah, the Kickstarter's the Kickstarter's complete, but you can always order, you can always pre-order off of uh, ominouspress.com as well. All right. Uh, very cool. And I know you're going to be doing Endless Winter with DC. Um, that comes out in January, it starts? December. We are December. We, the entire thing comes out in December. December is a five-week month and we'll have we'll have books, we'll have books in the Endless Winter crossover every week of the month. Well, I definitely hope you you come back to talk uh, talk to me about it with and is Andy Lanning correct? Andy Lanning, my my brother from another mother in, <laughs> in the UK. Well, like I said, I definitely hope you decide to come back with uh, Mr. Lanning and talk endless winter with with uh, with me. Sure, Jeff, be happy to do it. And this has been uh, this has been a pleasure. It's always fun. Thank you so much. That was fun, man. Ron's a great guy. We actually have a third interview scheduled with Ron to talk about some new stuff he's doing for DC uh, next week. That will be coming out pretty soon, which is going to be pretty awesome. That uh, Kendrick, I think Kendrick's doing that one. And uh, so we love Ron. Ron, you're, as always, you're welcome to come back anytime because uh, you've already been on twice. You got a third one scheduled, so you know. Well, let's let's do some more. It's uh, the Ron Mars show. If you like that, go to spoilerverse.com. Check out all of our back issues. We have so many. I mean, check out the other, other interview with Ron back from July. Uh, check out more of our fun stuff we have up there. Please, please, please go check that out and support the site. Uh, support the site by going to the Patreon, patreon.com slash country, or 
Click on that store link in the middle of the website at the top and buy an A t-shirt, a hoodie, a face mask, something look fly as hell. And to, you know, as always, we get a few dollars out of that and it helps keep the site going. Um, you know, while you're on the website too, check out all of our other podcasts we have up there, uh, like Haphazard Adventures and Misery Point Radio and Funny Book Forensics and Bridget Geekdoms. So much fun stuff. Go check it all out. It's pretty awesome. And also, if you want to chat with us, go to scpod.us slash discord and come chat with us. And now, to end this thing out for you, as we always do, in an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind and read more.